Um, so it really, it's very important that as a founder, that you, you have a vision. Um, and I don't mean fluffy words. I mean, very specific vision of what you're building. Now, the road to that vision, it's going to, with 100% assurance, going to change. It changed for us, but it's important that the North Star is the same. Um, if you change the North Star, that may happen, that's fine. Look at Slack, they completely pivoted, even the vision uh, for that matter, and it worked out for them. Uh, but it's, it's important that you have that because let's look at it from the investor point of view. If an investor is going to invest in a startup from the pre-seed, basically pre-revenue, maybe sometimes even pre-product, maybe you, you might have some traction. They need to be convinced about something. And at that point, there's typically the team needs to be, uh, you know, of the right sort of experience and, and the combination between the founders, um, the vision, so to speak. It's not so much on how we're going to get there, but what is it that you're going to, to, um, to, to solve for um, and where are you going? And then the market uh, opportunity. These are essentially the three main things that investors typically can assess uh, a, a very early stage startup. And that was the case for us as well. How's your day today? Very good. Thank you for having me. Excited to, to have this conversation. How are you? We all well, all well. We try to make, you know, uh, to customize the intro to, to your profile, but I would like to have your own version about your background and of course about Curious. This introduction is always uh, fun because I'd like to kind of uh, divide it in two aspects. Pretty much uh, part of my um, professional life, I've been uh, in the corporate space, spent many years with Cisco in the B2B sales functions or positions in various different countries. Um, and then I ventured in into uh, the startup world where things were very, very different. Um, and I spent some time with Swivel, uh, based out of Dubai, also in, in sales leadership role. Uh, and uh, until recently, when we jumped ship uh, in a founding position uh, to essentially start a startup from from zero to one, and currently still pushing that forward. And kind uh, of, do you feel more closer to still to the corporate world or to the startup world? You have become a startupper, or you still feel that you you, you know you are tied more to the corporate world? Mm. That's a tough one. Um, both has its charm, I would say. Um, being in a corporate world, um, you know, there, it's a lot more stability, a lot less headache, so to speak. Um, there's still challenges, but, uh, you know, on a different scale and, and typically very focused challenges in a sense. So if you're in the sales position, then you'll have challenges within that sort of bubble, so to speak. Um, in, uh, but on the other hand, you're uh, confined to that domain that you're within. Um, and if you're like me, um, um, you know, I also always wanted to explore the left, what's on the left, what's on the right. Um, so a little bit of chaos in, in the, uh, in the workplace was good for me in that sense. So when I moved to the startup side, this, for me, I thrived, um, right. Where there's no processes you need to build it from scratch, but on the other hand, there's a lot more challenges, uh, that falls on your plate that you probably, I didn't even have. A clue on how to start um, to solve them, so it has that charm. Uh, but on, but uh, the startup uh, life is obviously not that stable and and brings a lot of risks with it. So as long as 
you're okay with that, uh, I guess you're going to enjoy it. And I do. I have so many questions, so many questions, especially because I have seen this trend from people, from experienced people who have the passion to build a business and finally, you know, make the jump and the move from uh, the corporate world to the startup world. So I have so many questions. But before moving to the, these questions, I would like first to, to share with us more <laughs> about Curious. Um, what is this about? What is the problem that we are trying to solve? Uh, what are the other players probably that exist in the market and how you are planning to build something different or something bigger, maybe? Right. So let me maybe start with the problem, essentially, first. Yeah. Um, so, and, and this is not a, a local problem per se, it's a global problem. Uh, but I would say that locally, by locally, I mean Middle East and North Africa or the Middle East region, it's, it's a lot more intensified because of the market dynamics. But essentially, the problem that um, I'm referring to is there is a, a, a clear gap between employers and, and talent. And this gap is uh, two-faceted. So on one side, you have the employers, which um, essentially will would have um, um, a challenging time to find the relevant candidates uh, and, and qualified uh, as well for the job. Um, and I'm not talking about executives and I'm not talking about blue collar. I'm talking about, you know, the white collar uh, mid uh, or, or from zero to, to sort of mid-level jobs, which is majority of the workforce in many companies. Um, so they struggle to find talent. Most of the time it's because the talent doesn't have the relevant practical experience. Um, and then on the other side, you have talent that are struggling to, to even get a response from employers. So it is weird that you have the same problem from different perspectives. Um, there is enough jobs, there is enough talent, but they struggle to, to find each other. So this is the problem that we're tackling and we, the way we're doing it is slightly different so that we essentially, by, by building one product, we, we are uh, solving uh, the problems on both sides, on the employer and, and the talent side. So the way we, um, we uh, solve this, we essentially built Curious, which essentially for employers, um, see it as Google for talent, where in the same way that you can Google for information today uh, and you find um, relevant uh, response to your question, whatever that is that you're searching for, wherever that information is, it's going to come to you as an employer. It's exactly in the same way is what we're doing for talent. So an employer is able to um, uh, match and search for relevant talent, uh, whether they are on the Curious platform or anywhere else on the internet, you'll be able to get uh, relevant candidates in just a couple of minutes. On the other side as well for, for candidates, obviously they will be matched to this job. So no more job search and, and trying to play hide and seek with, uh, with the jobs. Uh, but um, they will also be supported um, in a way in which they can uh, work on real world uh, uh, projects to gain practical experience and at the same time get guidance from mentors. So as such, they are able, the, the candidates are able to build that practical experience in order for them to land the job that they're um, matched with. Let, let me, Alex, uh, let me deep dive a little bit more on the problem. So you think that this mismatch between the employers and the talent is because of the fact that employers cannot find uh, in an easy way the right talent or because there is no any talent that fits well with the position of their roles. That I mean, do you think that the employers lack the channels or do you think that the talent lacks, lacks some part of the knowledge that is needed for uh, to have the talent? 
So is it about skills or is it about the tools that are missing from the market? It's a little bit of everything, honestly. And it's also in this region, it's also about the market per se. So just to, to go into a few of these. So uh, first, let's talk about the practical skills, right? And it's also linked a little bit to the market. So especially in this market here in, in the Middle East, you have, uh, I'm from Sweden. So, you know, in Sweden, there's one curriculum. Whereas here in the Middle East, in UE alone, I think there's more than 15 plus uh, curriculum. So this means that education is very much curriculum backwards rather than industry needs backwards. So by the time um, candidates, you know, once they graduate, um, comes into the market, they will come out with different uh, theoretical knowledge. Now they need to apply that knowledge because employers are looking for tools experience or um, certain, certain um, workplace experience at that point. And that's, that's the gap from a skill point of view and the reason and how the sort of market is also not preparing these um, early career professionals from that moment in the life. And this will continue. So one result of this, what happens is as a graduate, because I have a hard time to get a job, what, what will I do? I'll take any job. So I become underemployed. And, and now this starts a vicious cycle, which means I will work for the next three, four years to try to get build the experience. Now, three years later, I find a job that is, I'm really excited about, but do I have the relevant uh, skills? No, because you haven't built the relevant skills. You, you've, you've taken anything. So it, it starts this vicious cycle. This is from the, from the skill side or from the sort of skill gap side. Now let's look from, from an employer point of view. Um, they're looking for talent. Nobody cares where the talent is coming from, whether they are on platform A or platform B or platform C or a referral or internal, it doesn't matter as long as I get my, my candidate. But the way all of these platforms has been built is that if you want to get candidates, you go to LinkedIn and then hopefully you find them on LinkedIn. If they're not on LinkedIn, then you have to go to another platform. If they're not on that platform, you go to the next. So you, from a tools point of view, employers are confined to the channels that they're using. Um, and if you're using all, then great. Now you have multi-channel, so you, your reach is larger. Uh, but not everybody does that because it's time consuming. It's very costly. So you will essentially see employers using one or two. Now their reach is limited. So once that you have the market, the skill gap, the limited in terms of reach, and then, uh, 30, it's also about, um, uh, the time, um, that it takes to essentially, you know, screen. Uh, the candidates um, uh, go through how many people are you going to actually interview for a role? You need to fill the role in two weeks. So you also, they're also limited on time in, in, in the sense on how much they can actually spend in terms of time and effort to actually source for it. So all of these three things makes it so much harder. And the last one that is sometimes tough um, is the Middle East region has, um, you know, dictates uh, what type of talent that employers can or cannot higher for certain roles. We're talking about nationalization. So amortization UAE or in Saudi, Sauditization, which now means that your talent size, talent pool size shrinks drastically. And, and add the other things that I mentioned as well on top of it. Now you, you, you can see how intensified this challenge becomes uh, just in this region. So, uh, and let me, you know, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. The main differentiation and main value that you can see is this aggregation of channels that you break in place through Curious is the fact that you enable the employers. Now we're talking about the employer side. You enable the employers to access a bigger 
pool of uh, potential uh, uh, talent. This is the main uh, differentiation. This is the main value add for um, your customers. So that's one of them. I would say there's three things, essentially. Number one is that, yes, we can aggregate talent. The sort of uh, curious is the Google for talent in the MENA region. So very optimized for the MENA region and localized in that sense. So one is to aggregate talent wherever they are um, in the MENA region uh, and, and whatever, whichever platform they are on. Uh, number two is to automate the recruitment process. I'm talking about automated talent sourcing, talent screening, and also the outreach process to, to candidates. And then the, the third is essentially um, to be able to, uh, to achieve a skill-based hiring. What I mean by that is that, you know, because we are matching um, candidates with, with projects that they can work on, on Curious and, and they have mentors as well, we are able to validate some of the, those skills that they, they showcase and demonstrate. And by that, uh, through that uh, uh, activity, where the employers are able to get these verified skills and kind of some sort of uh, social proof or proof points before they even speak with the, with the candidate. So they even save on screening time as well. So is it the combination of these three elements that makes your offering unique? Or you have seen that one of these three elements practically give more value to, uh, to both employers or to talent? Well, so... We need to, to look at it from different angles. To employers, I think, um, for them, because they can verify their, the, the skills themselves, it's going to be an added effort that they, they can do. Um, obviously, um, they are in the best position to verify those as well, most of the times, because they know what they're looking for. Uh, so the predominant, I would say, key priorities for employers is to reduce their time to hire. That's the number one, um, number one sort of KPI for them. Recruitment cost is a second. For some companies, it's much lower prioritized, but time to hire is really key. Because essentially they have a role for whatever purpose, expansion or backfill, and they need to fill that as, as fast as possible with the right person in the shoes. So this is where it all starts. And, and we essentially contribute to that KPI, to time to hire through the automation that I mentioned, but also because we can aggregate uh, talent um, mm -hmm. And uh, in, in this way, we are not just aggregating talent and giving them 1,500 talent to review because that, that we're actually adding to the problem. Uh, but uh, the, the matching algorithm is screening and, and essentially giving the employer, you know, the top 20 candidates for that role. So this is the main sort of value add and, and proposition. How we do it is, is in, uh, by automating and, and aggregating talent. Now for the candidate side, the main value is the um the support so for example a lot of candidates they might apply for 30 to 40 jobs and it's kind of spray and pray with the same cv uh, no difference and you hear back maybe once or twice if you're lucky so that is the essential support that they're getting by by getting practical experience that is relevant for that job because the way it works is I see the job that I'm uh, that I'm be matched with. I really like it. I I'm gonna apply for it, and then I will be matched with a project and a mentor that will be able to help me to become even more relevant for that job. So it's much more quality over quantity, uh, and that I feel supported. I know where uh, what I need to do. I know how I can uh, sort of uh, stand out in different uh, job search and and how I can upskill myself if needed. Of course, not everybody might need it. I like it. Alex, tell us about 
your aha moments for both in terms of when you define the problem, when you said, okay, ah, okay, that's a, pr- a big problem and I, I need to do something. Uh, so an aha moment on when <coughs> you, you define the problem or you, you know, you actually build the problem with, uh, within your mind, inside your mind. And your aha moment in terms of your solution, when you start with, we did something that gives value. Can you share with us these two aha moments from the problem and from the solution uh, side? Um, I don't think I ever had the aha moment. Like it wasn't this euphoria or, or this specific date and time when, aha, I, 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 I'm onto something. Because um, it was a, a, an evolution. So even curious as such, um, I never thought of it as being a startup. It, it sort of grew out of passion. Uh, I'm a product of mentorship myself, had many mentors um, that uh, that guided me uh, throughout my career and accelerated my career. And, and because of that, I started giving back. Um, and, and when I was mentoring these sort of early career uh, graduate students, I started noticing that the same problem that I had is still here. And I, I had the problem in Sweden. I didn't have the problem in Dubai. So it's it's a uh, region agnostic in that sense so alex you saw the problem from the talent uh, side not from the employer side i saw the talent from uh, sorry the problem from the talent side that they don't know where to start uh, i don't know where to start um i i don't know which career is the right one for me i don't know how to get there even if i know uh, as well so i saw it always from the talent side <clears throat> because the employers if you if you think about it their problem is also starting at the talent side. Uh, it's not because the talent knows if everybody knew how to find the relevant jobs, how to improve themselves, there won't be a problem on the employer side. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I see it at least. Um, so so it, it was an evolution. And, and then when I spoke with a lot of my mentees over time, obviously, um, it kind of, okay, I, I need help. I need guidance on ABC. So started doing that, just me. Uh, you know, one-on-one. And then that evolved, okay, now I understand this would really need practical experience. Then we started the projects, um, which is basically a simulated project from the workplace. Me being from sales, it was, it started in sales. Um, and then from there it was, okay, great. I would love an internship. I, I really need an internship. I'm graduating now. And then started chasing internships. And you see, as these building blocks as we followed the needs and the journey of, of the talent, these building blocks started coming together such. Uh, but the, the aha moment was, I wouldn't say aha moment, but the, the big question mark was, how do we make this scalable? Because you can do one-on-one mentorship, physical, you can do projects, physical as well as in practical uh, and face-to-face and, and internship and, and trying to find that. But to make this scalable was really the toughest part. Um, and we, we started with live online video, and then we iterated multiple times. And really when, when we managed to achieve, uh, the project experience where you can get practical experience in a scalable way, when, when we made it self self-paced, but guided as well. So I feel that somebody is next to me, so to speak, guiding me through this project, but it, I'm, I'm not sort of, I, it doesn't have to be live. Uh, and that's when that that is probably the aha moment because now we are, we are scalable in that yeah. sense. So your aha moment is when you manage to find the model to make the the business more scalable, not scalable, it, yeah. more scalable. 
yeah, to, to make it scalable in the sense that um, it doesn't have to, because this is about people, so it doesn't have to wait until I get a, on a live session with the mentor or, or uh, I have to attend a, a recording of some sort or, or a webinar for the projects. That's, that's when we knew that, okay, now we can improve the skills and people can, can get that uh, relevant experience that they need. And then on the employer side, we knew that employers, and this was an, an early insight that we got, we knew that employers, as long as we build it and they will come kind of, right? As long as we have the relevant talent and no matter where they are, um, they will be able to, uh, you know, be, to see the value in it. And um, with tech, you can automate uh, a lot, which we did. And this is also the reason why we started with the employer side the last. We, we, it took us a year to even um, launch the employer side. For a whole year in Curious, we only focused on the talent side to build the, yeah. the, build the talent pool, to build the data uh, around them, to build the projects and the mentorship uh, or the mentor base. I would like to discuss this uh, about this moving from B2C to B2B later on. Um, but tell us a little bit more on how uh, you mentioned that you wanted to, to, to build a scalable business or you wanted, you wanted to increase the scalability of your business. That yeah. was a byproduct of necessity. It was something that you couldn't handle your, your daily job or your daily workload and you wanted to find the ways uh, to make it more scalable, to make your life better. Or was, that a was it a, a strategic decision because you wanted to raise money, because you wanted to build a bigger business and you, want, and you knew that that was the road, to, that was the path to, to go to VCs, to show that you have something scalable in order to, to be fundable. So it was a product of necessity or a product of ambition? Um, I think both uh, in this case. You know, in, in, in trying to think back... Um, as Curious started as a passion project, um, it sort of stayed in the passion bucket, so to speak, until um, we got enough validation and, and we decided this could actually become a startup. And now, scratching your head, okay, what does that mean? Scalability is the first thing that's going to come to, head, to your mind. Mm -hmm. Maybe not day one, but you need to build it with that mindset uh, because you won't see a startup you know, a startup is a high growth company, essentially. And, and if it's not scalable, it's not going to stay like that. It's just going to become a passion project or a lifestyle business. So I think that would be the, the pivotal point where we knew that we're going to build a startup. There's not only, not only does it need to be scalable, but I'm a corporate guy. I don't have any, any startup experience at that point. So I needed to get that startup experience myself um, as well, in addition to figuring out how to make it scalable. Um, so it was definitely out of necessity, um, uh, for sure, and, and uh, it needed to have the DNA of a startup, and scalability is definitely one of them. When was the trigger point for you, but also for the investors, because as far as I know, you have raised uh, uh, a, a big round from some of the most credible names in the MENA region. So when you said, when you understood that, okay, now we have something that probably this will be interesting and when the investors saw your business and they, 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 they said, okay, uh, this is something that we can invest in. Um, so it really, it's very important that as a founder, that you, you have a vision. Um, and I don't mean 
fluffy words. I mean, very specific vision of what you're building. Now, the road to that vision is going to, with 100% assurance, going to change. It changed for us, but it's important that the North Star is the same. Um, if you change the North Star, that may happen, that's fine. Look at Slack, they completely pivoted, even the vision uh, for that matter, and it worked out for them. Uh, but it's, it's important that you have that because let's look at it from the investor point of view. If an investor is going to invest in a startup from the pre-seed, basically pre-revenue, maybe sometimes even pre-product, maybe you, you might have some traction. They need to be convinced about something. And at that point, there's typically the team needs to be, uh, you know, of the right sort of experience and, and the combination between the founders, um, the vision, so to speak. It's not so much on how we're going to get there, but what is it that you're going to, to, um, to, to solve for um, and where are you going? And then the market uh, opportunity. These are essentially the three main things that investors typically can assess uh, a, a very early stage startup. And that was the case for us as well. Uh, so so it, all... wasn't, it wasn't the fact that you managed to build a scalable model that made the investors to say, okay, let's invest. It was just the mission and the team. It was just the vision. Okay, these guys can see something that probably we cannot see or we don't see or others don't see. And there is the right team to implement. That was the case for you? It was, no, yes, but, but we also, in our specific, I was just speaking generally right now, but yeah. for us, specifically the four things that we had, we already had early traction, uh, right? And early traction, what I mean, uh, uh, users on the platform, we already had a product. Um, an MVP of sort at that point uh, with early traction that uh, we acquired completely organically, right? So if you have early traction and you, you acquire them with no marketing spend, um, that also shows that, you know, there's, it's a model, there's something here that could, you know, with more investment, with more refinement could, could become um, scalable. So you, the, the, the DNA and the seeds for scalable model was already in place in that sense. So of course, there needs to, I, there's always a need for some traction, whether it's users or revenue, early revenue or not, or um, uh, pilots with, depending on who's your client. I, I, I personally think if you really want to be able to have really good investors, you need to have some sort of proof point. Uh, Alex, how did you manage to build this initial traction? Because to my knowledge, this is what most of the founders uh, struggle with, to find these first users, uh, engaged users, or to first uh, the first customers, if, if they are uh, uh, going um, after a B2B model. <coughs> tell us about the experience and tell us if you have some tips or some insights that would be useful for other uh, early stage SaaS entrepreneurs who struggle with this particular point um, <coughs> of getting the first customers, the getting the first users, use the product, uh, in a, in a natural traction, the very early traction. Yeah. Um, so in our case, because we didn't start with the employer side at all, we started with the talent side. So at that point, it was more, it was two things, the projects that I mentioned, and then the mentors. Yeah. To, to acquire mentors, it was very easy. I just raised my hand. So I was the first mentor on the platform uh, for a few months, and then and my co-founder as well. Uh, and then we went straight to our direct uh, network, our other friends from from Cisco or different uh, companies from this region. So suddenly we had 10 mentors. So that was a starting point to acquire the mentors. 
uh, now for us to be able to validate uh, the upskilling and, and how good that works. And basically the outcome of doing this is essentially to build a rich profile of the candidates, because that's a necessity for the employers at, at a later stage, rich profile with verified skills. It means that the talent needs to complete the projects successfully as well. So we need to validate, validate that. So then um, we started creating projects um, completely manual. And I didn't even know how to create a project at that point though, because I'm not from the education space. So there was a lot of trial and error, but the first project was literally in person. We rented a space in Dubai, downtown. Um, um, and then we invited 20, uh, 21 students, 15 showed up and they got three challenges. Uh, we also got uh, two corporates to uh, sort of uh, sponsor these challenges. So basically meaning that whatever output that comes from the uh, from these uh, professionals, they would be using it as well. So it was uh, kind of like a micro internship as such. And that's how we started. Um, physical, in person, to see the people engaging with these projects. Uh, we did that probably for four months uh, and multiple of these. Um, and as such, we learned how to create, design it properly, how to incentivize the people, how to, uh, you know, build these connections in, in an optimal way. What would uh, be uh, relevant for the employers? I have to say, Alex, that this story reminds me a lot of uh, the legendary story of Airbnb. I mean, they, that they tried and they started by doing everything manual, nothing scalable, or, you know, spending time with people who were living, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in different yeah. places with travelers. So is this the key takeaway of uh, the early traction? Is this, uh, you know, try to be close to your customers, next to your customers, have, a, you know, physical proximity with them? Absolutely. Uh, if, if, you, if you don't speak as a founder, especially in the early days um, uh, with, with your users or your customers, whoever they are, as much as 70% of your time should just be that. Don't, there's no product. You don't even think about the product. You need to understand the product better, uh, sorry, the, the problem uh, on a very deep level. Um, and you need to have certain key insights that others might you know, not look for or not think about unconsciously. Um, and the only way to do that is by, by being close to your users. You will never be able to do this remotely. And a lot, we learned a lot of things, not just about what they say, but what the, the body language, how do you, you know, they interact with each other, collaborate, we, we noticed that some projects was too long because of the way they were um, uh, engaging in, in front of us in the room. So a lot of these insights you will not be able to get online if you try, mm -hmm. try to do this. And this is just what Ale I've done. Alex, you said that you started with a B2C model, of course, started with this, you know, very uh, uh, manual and non-scalable approach, and then you moved to the B2B. Was it part of your roadmap? Was was it um, a pivot that you decided to uh, to make down the line? Uh, tell us about this, and tell us about the challenges on this transition of from yeah. the purely B two C into uh, mainly B two B model. Yeah. Well, it was it was a conscious and planned transition, but obviously from external uh, point of view, inwards, it's always going to be looking as a pivot, right? Uh, but when we started with the B2C side, and just to not use this type of terminology, the B2C side means the candidate side for us, or the talent side, um, we knew that, you know, this is our product. We are in the, in, the, in the people business. 
which means our product is not the tech, it's actually the, the talent. Uh, so we needed to build that first. Uh, otherwise, what is it that we're going to give to employers? Uh, because it, we could have gone the other way. There's another way we could have done it uh, instead of the way we're doing it. Instead of building our own talent pool um, and, and uh, you know, helping them to upskill themselves and get practical experience, we could have just become a pure aggregator for talent. But what mode, what competitive edge would have built? Everybody could have uh, copied the tech and, and do exactly the same. So this is the reason why we didn't go this route. We went in the route that is a harder one. It takes more time, more investment to build our own talent pool and essentially um, having a data play because it, it's all about the data. We knew that when we are going to have the employer side, there will be a matching algorithm at the core. And this matching algorithm feeds on data. The better data you have, the more data you have, the better the matching is going to be on both sides. Uh, so while we started focusing on the talent side, knowing that we are going to transition eventually at the right time, we also wanted to take the opportunity to uh, validate the monetization on the talent side. So that's why we started with that. Um, we knew that it wouldn't be um, the, the key primary revenue for us long-term. It's an it's a auxiliary uh, revenue as such. And it's also not a revenue model or, or a payment model for talent where we force them to pay for them to be able to get the value. That's not how it works. Everything's free on Curious. It's only for those that wants to get a certificate and get to get the review from mentors that essentially would pay for a membership. Otherwise, it's completely free. So at the point when we built the, the uh, when we were ready, and what do I mean by ready? We have the talent pool, we built the matching algorithm, and we built the employer product. So these three elements needed to be in place. It took a, it, it took, um, a year to get there. Um, this is essentially when we uh, started monetizing on the employer side and we started doing the transition. Um, to answer your second question, how was this transition? Um, it's hard to transition when you've been in uh, full sort of uh, talent mode or B2C focus, because now you need to focus on, you need to build a sales driven organization. Uh, whereas on the talent side, we were a marketing driven organization, right? So how do you now switch this over? Uh, so, but for us, we managed this quite well. I think we did that switch in about two, two and a half months um, because we were prepared for it, right? We were planning this and it was conscious decision um, and uh, from, from the beginning. Got it. And, um, and I think this is something, uh, something quite relevant because we know that by definition, early stage uh, startups face some resource constraints. So practically, yep. they need to have uh, you know some marketeer because they don't have the marketing ex uh, experience or uh, sales experience or uh, product development or whatever. And at the same time, we have seen that there is some you know uh, an emerging trend probably with many startup advisors, people who want to you know to help startup companies in the very beginning for different functions. Have you come across of this, uh, you know, of this, of this trend? Have you worked with uh, advisors? Um, what's your take on this? Is it something that helps entrepreneurs move faster? Is it something that practically doesn't work because that, you know, does not help them to create the value in-house? What's your experience and what's, what, what are your thoughts on this? Let me just try to understand the question. So is it more on the team that you hire or the type of advisors that you're surrounding yourself with? In terms of the advisors, I mean, 
Okay. By, but by definition, startups have some, you know, resource cons constraints. They don't have probably the best engineer or the best, you know, the most experienced marketeer or the most experienced go-to-market uh, guy or whatever. And usually they try to, not always, but some cases, in some cases they try to, you know, to, to bridge this gap by bringing an, uh, an external advisor. Yeah. Um, is it a good practice? Is it a bad practice? Considering that they don't build the skills and the, you know, the infrastructure in-house and they buy it from someone else. Does this work? What's, yeah. what's your experience? What's, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, this, this is a hard question to answer. Um, I think, and I, I hate answering a question like this, but I think it really depends. Uh, let, let's look at the facts first, so that it's not only my opinion. Any advice you bring on board, is going to be someone that is already successful, most likely, otherwise they wouldn't be an advisor, um, that has a lot on their plate, probably multiple hats, full-time job, or if not multiple jobs, uh, board member or uh, board in different uh, startups or other companies. One of these or all of these could be the case. And for an advisor to be able to really give you super valuable insights, they need to be part of the business. Not, not hired, that's not helpful, but spend a lot more time with you. Because I I haven't, uh, you know, I haven't seen many advisors that spends one, one hour per month and their insights is gonna be wow in that sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. there are exceptions, of course, but I haven't experienced that yet. So unless they understand your business on a deep level, then the advice will be quite generic basis mm -hmm. on their experience in similar type of companies. So if your problem as an, as a founder is, is, you know, generic problems might work, but once you go deeper and you have unique problems that are product related, market related, go to market channel related, whatever that is, now you need that, you need that context and, and that context means more time with the advisor. So as long, the first thing that I care about is how much time can you spend with me, Mr. Advisor? Mm -hmm. What's what's the bare minimum that you have seen that it's acceptable in order to produce results? Because as far as I understand, you work or you have worked with advisors in the past. Yeah. Have have you have you seen a bare minimum in terms of the numbers of hours that need to commit for the business or the numbers of hours that need to meet with the founders or with the functional teams? Any framework, any 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 practice that you can share with us? Um, it it varies. So I have different advisors for different sort of fields. Um. But it depends on the field. I, I would say if it's, for example, finance related, uh, uh, at least for me, uh, or typically less, uh, because finance is finance, you can only do it in a few ways and that's it. But once you talk about go to market, once you talk about product, once you talk about uh, different sort of growth hacks and marketing and so on, that's when it becomes unique, uh, right? And what we try to do is to spend about you know, at least five to 10 hours per month with each investors. And this is why you have to be very uh, selective because you can't have, if you have three, four of these and you're going to spend five to 10 hours per month, you're just going to spend time with invest with uh, advisors. So um, for me, uh, you know, um, I kind of rotate um, as well, some advisors and, and take a pause from some, um, but I would say five to 10 hours, especially in the, in the initial phase, not Always five to ten hours per month or per week, per month, per month. Yeah. Okay. 
And uh, have you seen, is it for you at least, again, it, it is based on your experience, is it more important to work and collaborate with someone who has a domain expertise or who, someone who is a functional expert? Is it better, for example, to bring on board someone who has an HR tech in your case or who has built an HR tech successfully in the past or someone who has become very successful on the product development or the marketing or the growth or the sales? Where do you see more value? All of the above. I always, me personally, I always go backwards from a problem statement. Um, so if it's, for example, understanding a market, then a domain expert or, or you know, a domain advisor would, would make a lot more sense, especially from the region or from the region that you're operating. Mm -hmm. um, but if it's a, something that is product related uh, or go to market, then it's more functional, uh, maybe. So it really depends on the problem problem that, that you want to solve uh, or problems that you want to solve. Um, and it could be, you know, large problems that takes long time and it, it needs to iterate and go in phases. Um, so even when I had mentors um, in my uh, early days in my career, I also had different mentors for different things that I wanted to improve on. So if I wanted to become better at presentation skills, improve that, I had a mentor just for that. Uh, same with negotiation, so very granular sort of problem statement. So I and I've applied exactly the same in in, in the startup uh, world as well. Where we go backwards from the problem statement and try to figure out how can we solve it. Sometimes you solve it with uh, going to uh, to other founders that may have had the same uh, headache and and they solved it somehow. Some sometimes with advisors, consultants. Be creative, at least. Yeah. So if I understood it correctly, the advisors could probably change over the time. I mean, because the problems are changing during the business building process. So you can start with an advisor helping you with, you know, building the product. Again, then you can have an advisor of, uh, you know, uh, helping you with the marketing. So is it something that is changing over the time or you, you know, you practically marry an advisor throughout the, the, the company life cycle? I, I don't think it's, it's not so much changing. It's more about building it. So when we started, we had one, now we have four, um, it's kind of a board of advisors and you pull them in when needed. And there might be a phase when you need one, one of them much more intense, uh, intensified, um, being involved in the, the business for a bit. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, just sprints, uh, an hour here and there. So it's not so much about changing them. Uh, and I don't. I would never say just randomly change people because building a network, that's the key to success, but much more to know when to uh, bring them in and to be clear with them about that as well. Do you see that there is an optimal number of advisors that you can have and you can manage and uh, can actually uh, add value to your company? Well, well when I, when I uh, in my first couple of years of, in my career, I had 12 mentors in one shot, but it's easier to manage mentors compared to advisors because you have a lot more time on your hand, especially in the corporate uh, world. Uh, but as a founder with advisors, it really depends. Depends on how much time do you have on your hands. If you're multiple founders, it would be great to split as well because if you have a tech co-founder, then the tech advisors can spend time with that co-founder. So this is even better. So it, it, I would say it depends, but I would look at it from a uh, functional kind of, have someone that has an array of expertise within two, three domains, 
um, and and you know don't have multiple advisors that are experts in the same because mm-hmm. then you you only yeah. can do makes uh, sense. Alex, uh, we didn't touch AI at all, and it's you know it's 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 uh, the you know the the hot topic in the world, and actually it's part of your product as far as I know. Tell us, how do you utilize AI? Is it AI part of your offering? Do you think that AI would be probably the, can become the main differentiator of what you're building? And in general, do you think that with uh, uh, ChatGPT and generative AI, will we have more innovative uh, businesses or more copycats? What, what, what are your thoughts on this? First, we start with uh, how you utilize as curious AI. Yeah. Uh, and if it is part of your strategy and part of your differentiator, um, and how do you see AI building the landscape, the startup uh, landscape in the future? Yeah. Before I answer how we're using AI, let me explain the problem that exists in the data overall, specifically for talent. So I'm, a, I'm guilty as charged. Um, if you go to my LinkedIn, I haven't touched my LinkedIn, for example, for, for a very long time. I haven't updated my skills, although I've learned tons of skills since then. This is the normal problem everywhere. Um, and now when you have talent with suboptimal data, right, profiles, and you want to build a matching algorithm that essentially is going to match employers with talent, then you're always going to be limited by the amount of data that is accessible to you as a platform, to us as curious. Knowing this, um, there's two ways to solve this, right? In, in traditionally, there's always been to do keyword matching. This existed for ages and still exists today where you have a matching algorithm where you look at, he's looking for a sales person. Let's find this. It's, you're really just matching. Keywords. Uh, and if the, you don't find the keywords in the profiles, they're out essentially, uh, very, very traditional. The other way is the way we humans do it, right? If I look at a salesperson, if I look at a job and I know kind of what, what is needed, I'm thinking sales because that's what I know. Um, then I can evaluate if somebody from the profiles, be it CV, be it LinkedIn, whatever, I can evaluate if this person, okay, this person has this role. I understand what this role is. It's a key account manager. I think they could do sales manager as well. They have enough, that sort of, you know, um, interpretation. Yeah, uh, analysis is is possible for us humans. With Gen AI coming in, um, obviously this becomes easier to do, but um, there is always going to be uh, a reliance on having the right data. Gen AI in its soul is not gonna solve this. You need to have the right data. So you need to have the the relevant data mapping um, and so on and so forth. I'll give you an example. Um, how we use AI today and how we built our own matching algorithm is essentially to replicate the human way of doing this analytics. So I'll do exactly the same example, like I mentioned earlier, where we have a, a sales job and now our matching algorithm knows, okay, this is a sales manager job. What are, um, similar type of job titles that I can search for when I'm trying to match for candidates? Right, that same type type of analysis that a human being would do. So in the search, the matching algorithm looks at okay, this is a sales manager, but let me search for that plus key key account manager plus sales specialist plus sales 
whatever, so a business development manager. And now the algorithm is searching for five roles or five titles. And this is just one example. And this is not keyword matching anymore, right? And, and this is how we essentially um, uh, prepare the data to make sure that we have this interrelated skills mapping, interrelated industry companies, interrelated relationship between the data points that exist on the talent side. And this is what we built in the matching algorithm, and that's at the core uh, of it. And uh, it took a long time to, to build this, not because the tech is very difficult to build, because the data is, takes a long time mm -hmm. to get to. And um, super interesting. And how, how do you see AI, and more, more specifically generative AI, affecting the, the startup landscape? Do you, see, do you think that we will see more vertical specific uh, startups? I mean, building uh, AI and building a product using AI for HR tech or for this specific use case. Do, do you think that will become, the startups will become more vertical focused or more horizontal, horizontal focused? Um, tough one. Um, it, it's it's probably going to be. For example, a bit... in, in your case, you are building a very you know a vertical specific solution which uses AI, but to solve a, a, a you know a problem about a specific uh, vertical. Do you in see? General, in general, I would say it's probably for any startup you should always go deep in one niche first, and mm -hmm. then you expand uh, horizontally. Um, and and with. With AI, the way I see it is, if you, as a startup, you're going to use Gen AI, which is Open AI or BARD or um, uh, any of these large language models that exist out there, which essentially is going to be, it is commoditized and it's going to be an, a utility much more than, um, and don't try to compete with it yet. Um, I think it's important that you use it for non-core functions whether you're going to automate the operations or whether you're going to provide an, an enhanced experience to your users, but it's not the core, it's not your startup, because this is when you risk, you know, becoming displaced. If one day one of these LLMs does exactly the same, you have nothing else, essentially. Um, so that is the risk that I see in with, with Gen AI. Uh, there's, there's an example of this recently OpenAI launched, uh, I don't know what they call it, but where you can, with ChatGPT, uh, engage with um, different documents, essentially. And I remember six, seven, or eight months ago, there was a bunch of startups that came out where you could just upload your document and engage with. Mm -hmm. uh, now, what happens with those startups today? They're yeah. gonna they're gonna have to pivot or, or find a different way, obviously. So avoiding this is key. Um, I'm, not, I'm not against Gen AI whatsoever. I think it's amazing, and you can use it for productivity increase and and for increasing the the user experience, but don't use it for your core. Alex, you said that, and we know this from the very beginning, that you started from the corporate world and then you moved to the startup world. Yeah. What was the main challenge? How did you manage to overcome this challenge? And what what were the things that you took from this experience that you had from the corporate world that give you give you some advantage into your startup journey so far? Mm, I love this question. Um, by far, the biggest hurdle, and even today, is people. Uh, managing people, hiring people, when you barely have money, um, you, you, uh, you need to build a culture. I had no idea how to build a culture. Um, 
and everything falls on you, retain people, motivate people. This is by far the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, and it's challenging even today. Uh, because by virtue of you being a startup, you're going to face ups and downs very much. Up, and it, they're going to go very frequent as well. And, uh, you know, as a founder, you're driven by a passion. You have a fire in you, so you kind of go with it. It's fine. But when you have a team of 20, 30 people. So, so what's, what's, what's the advice here? How do you manage people? How do you inspire people to follow you um, through all these uh, high and lows? I can tell you only how sort of I am and uh, not so much that this is the playbook. So for me, I, I, I believe in transparency. I believe in um, true, and I'm not saying this from a, from a cliche point of view, transparency to the point where, you know, I'm, I'm open with almost everything with my team um, that I can mention, of course. Um, I'm direct with feedback. Uh, and, and once they understand that, you know, what, what kind of person you are and you treat them in that way, you'll get the same back. And the thing is, once you get that transparency back and you build that sort of transparent uh, and uh, culture where people can speak like that and be transparent, a lot of the issues is going to start to surface. Hmm. And then you, you can start tackling those. The problem with, with the bad culture is that these sort of silos starts to get created. People hmm. are not giving honest feedback and then you don't know where to start and what the problem is. And by the time you know about it, it might be too late. Um, so that's so how I tra transparency and trust probably that's that's uh, the way you build a, a good culture that help other people to follow and you know for me it's also consistency so meaning if I tell you that I'm going to do something I'm going to do it at the promised date and time and 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 that and being consistent with it um, uh, that means that people can depend on me and then they will give the same back and that's important for for startup. And Alex, you didn't have this kind of problem, this kind of people management problem in the corporate world. Why? Because there was the resources, there, there, there was the money there and you could actually buy these kind of things. What's, what's the difference? Uh, a lot of differences. A lot of it was in place already in terms of okay, yeah. HR process, operations, sales process, invoicing, collection, um, templates, you know, all of this yeah. was in place. So um, visibility, dashboards, uh, analytics, you just have to focus on your KPIs mm -hmm. and that's it. Mm -hmm. Of mm -hmm. course, there's always going to be uh, people management challenges, but when you have that, plus everything else has to be built or somebody says, I have this problem, I don't know how to do it. And then his problem becomes your problem, multiply times 20. Now you can see how quickly it, it is very different compared to the corporate world. So it, it is very different. Some nuances exist still. Alex, was it a trait that you took from the corporate world and you, you know, you do, uh, you take it with you in the, in the startup journey that gave you an advantage as a, as a founder? Because, for example, we, we know from, uh, from your, from your resume that you used to work with Cisco, for example, and we know that investors usually appreciate some, this kind of logos. Is yeah. it only about logos or is it, or is it also about some skills that, come along no i i speak for myself here for sure i don't think i would be able to be successful without having the experience i had from cisco and swivel uh, what cisco taught me is how to be extremely professional how to sell outcomes because i i i've done a sales career 
uh, and not features. Um, you know how to win, uh, win, uh, build relationship and win trust. It's very difficult to do that in a startup <clears throat> because by definition of you being very early, if your product looks bad and it breaks, the trust is already broken by the first uh, uh, meeting, essentially. So that that is one thing. And uh, but what's lacking is you have you have I, I had zero experience in building from zero to one. I had zero experience in building products whatsoever. Uh, and then when when I was in in Swivel, that is where I got you know the speed to build from zero to one mentality, the growth hacking uh, kind of mindset um, and, and to build processes. And, and these are the adjacent things that uh, a startup gave me before I, I started Curious. But the main thing I would say, if I would do all of this again, the biggest learning is hire very slowly, very, very slowly, not fast, uh, I would probably fire much, much faster. Um, and I would focus first on acquisition channel and then the product. As a first time founder, mm -hmm. I think it's very known that you focus on a product first and then the acquisition channel, build it and then sell. But I would flip it instead. So let me, let me wrap it up. Um, your key takeaway from your experience so far is hire slow, fire fast, sell first, build then. That's 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 the the ideal framework for you. That's the key takeaway that you would like to share with other ambitious elicit such entrepreneurs. That's my yeah. That's my learning. And next time, if I need to do it next time, this is exactly my framework. I, I like it, and I'm fully aligned on this. Before closing this uh, really great uh, and insightful conversation, Alex, any any resources, any books or tools that have been particularly helpful for you in your journey so far? Yeah, I think some of them might be very well known. Uh, From Zero to One is one of my favorite books. Uh, Peter Thiel, I think. Um, what was the other one name? Uh, over, Oversubscribed, I think it's called. Oversubscribed, uh, yes, oversubscribed uh, is the second book that I would definitely, um, definitely recommend. And the reason I love this book is because being a startup founder, you try to sell, and you kind of your time is neglectable as you're you're sort of aligning to the leads and the clients' time. And this book really flips it upside down, where it should it's it's actually the other way around. So. These two books really changed my mindset uh, many, many times. Alex, it was amazing having you. I really appreciate the time uh, that you took to, to share all these insights uh, with us. Best of luck uh, in, um, the, in the following journey for with, uh, with Curious. Uh, thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you, Vice, for having me. I really enjoyed this.